0: Hi, everyone. I'm Sean Lovejoy, founder and CEO of CourageToLead.com. I'm honored to be with friend and partner and coach Todd Wilson, the founder of the Exponential Network. Uh, Todd, great to be with you again, my friend.
1: Sean, it's always fun to be with you. Looking forward to this today.
0: It's going to be fun. We're going to be talking about teams today. You've built amazing teams, Um, over the years. And you've done so largely virtually, which is amazing to me. But you built them within the local church and then launching all things exponential. You did a lot of that virtually and still continue to do so to this day.
1: Well, uh, you know, part of it's out of necessity at this point, just like everybody watching with uh, COVID, it forces us into it. And uh, I would say the same for you, Sean, ever since I've known you. uh, when, When people... You know, say, hey, tell me about Sean Lovejoy. T- teams is actually one of those things that comes to mind when I think of you. You've written about it, you've practiced it. So I've been excited for today. Just I think it's even good for us maybe to start. Everybody's wrestling in the middle of COVID right now with uh the whole decentralized how do you do teams maybe we can just start a little bit, each of us given context of what we're doing with our own. We both lead decentralized teams at this point, so we can talk a little bit about what that looks like and, and, you know, what impacts COVID's even having and how we're adjusting.
0: Well, you know, I've always told people, you know, we ended up on that fastest growing church list a few times. I'm not a big fan of the list, but it exists, you know, and But I I tell pastors, it was always in spite of my preaching, Todd, not because of it. (laughs) I never felt like my top five, you know, in my top five gift list was preaching. But we did have, we always had a healthy team culture, you know, and people would come down to our pastor's conference and ask us if, you know, hey, you guys really seem like you genuinely like each other and like your friends. Do you guys ever have conflict? And we would laugh out loud, of course, like, yes, like all the time. But because of that, we had a mutual understanding. It was healthy. And, you know, we did all that. And then, you know, making the prayerful decision, you actually helped me with behind the scenes to hand off the church. I remember telling my wife, like, I'm kind of excited about not having a big staff, you know, under roof for the next season. And I did it, I had to do it all virtually and contract work and all of that stuff from, you know, from the beginning. But that kind of actually positioned me well you know to have a virtual team all across the country of course we have 17 coaches now from Los Angeles to New York and that man having all that kind of set up before covid helped us from having to reinvent the wheel but i know a lot of churches have had to start from ground zero and figure out how to do this in a virtual environment
1: yeah we it i i was asked on a regular basis a couple of months into covid you know hey how's it impacting your team i you know i think there's this perception when you're running something, whether it's a church or exponential that, you know, we just sort of think it has to be this live, the team getting together thing. And every time I'd be asked the question, you know, how's COVID impacting your team? And it'd be like, well, we haven't really missed much of a beat because it, you know, what we were doing before COVID is pretty close to after. We, um, I do think, I, I, you and I have talked about this before. I mean, so many of us are missing. I, I never thought I'd say this, but I can't wait to get on a plane again. Like, I can't wait for <laughs> to be flying again. Yes, we might need counseling for that, but it's true. And, and, you know, our team, the thing I really miss is at least once a quarter, our team would get together face-to-face. So even though we were a virtual organization, we would still get together face-to-face and you know, use the whiteboards and the sheets on the wall, and dream, and go out and do, go get good dinner together, and do stuff. And you know, we're we're still lacking that in the middle of COVID now. But the you know the ongoing operational part of it, uh, we kind of like you had made the adjustment before COVID. So
0: well, we touched on it last week. You know, Tom Rayner talking about you know the pandemic being the great accelerator you know, the great exposure. I I do think teams have struggled more, you know, not being able to be, you know, in the same space. A lot of senior pastors, you know, have reached out to us, say, I've got this guy. I've got this gal. And they were there. They existed. You know, there was maybe some tension. Their antennas were up, but not being in close proximity all the time. Like they're just distance decay happened more rapidly you know just toxicity leaked into the team and now they're dealing with these issues and so maybe we can help some guys today
1: yeah well Sean why don't we start with this you you know we uh the way this works usually with Sean and I is I, I I'd like to be a bubble inside his head sometimes because Sean will send me a text or do a call and I got an idea And uh, this particular one, the title of this episode is Fostering Togetherness. And it was one of those things that either long and slow developed in your mind or you woke up in the middle of the night with it. But just give some context, Sean. How did God, you know, what's the messaging of God speaking to you of this fostering togetherness? Why that in the middle of healthy team? I mean, you just put out a course from your ministry on, on teams. And I mean, there's so much that we could cover on teams, but fostering togetherness. Why that topic?
0: Well, one is just living out my own pain. You know, one of the biggest lies from hell I ever believed as a senior pastor is that if we could just hire this person, it would solve all of our problems. (laughs) <laughs> then you realize every person is a potential problem, <laughs> you know, and they have personalities and their complexities, and, you know, all I mean, it's more to manage the more you hire. And a staff doesn't make a team, you know, but it can become one. And I think one, I think every leader has to, the primary responsibility of a leader is to be the culture architect, mm. you know, but to, you've got to turn that staff. Into a team. You know, you're not a huge, huge college football fan like I am, but yesterday was the national signing day. You know, and my team, without mentioning names, signed (laughs) the number one class in modern college football recruiting history, but you don't even know that yesterday.
1: Uh, This is one of those A states, right? Arkansas or. I want to set Tennessee. You're a big Tennessee fan in football, right? One of the things that's not talked enough
0: about when it comes to the great theologian Nick Saban is his ability to get these five, what they call five-star athletes that touch the ball on every down in high school and get them to care more about winning championships than scoring every touchdown and touching mm-hmm. the ball every single time. And that's not easy to do you know and i think our responsibility as the leaders is try to take all this talent and gift these gifts that god's assembled and try to get them surrender their own interests
1: mm.
0: you know for the benefit of the kingdom and if we're not you know, if we're honest and candid, that's not easy to do. It's not easy to do ourselves. It's not easy to get everybody on the team in that place where they care more about the collective kingdom team win than my area, what I'm doing, my schedule, my ministry, et cetera.
1: Hmm. You know, Sean, um, what I'm reminded of in that, Larry Wachemeyer, friend of both of ours, Larry's yeah. a senior pastor in Long Beach, California, and Larry in his book, Flow, um, he, he makes this really profound statement that just stayed with me. He, he, he asked the question, how would it change the way we play the game if, if an assist in basketball was worth three points instead of scoring the goal? Yes. What if the way you scored three points was an assist? And if you think about it, uh, like all these sports metaphors today, m- when my youngest son was in soccer, like at six or seven years old, The team he was on won every game of the season. And I was talking to the coach about, how'd you do this with these little kids? And he's like, it's really simple. You teach them the basics and it's, where's the ball? Where's the goal? Where do I need to position myself to either score the goal or keep the goal from happening? But even in that teaching, he said, where do I position myself to score, and, and if you think about the game of basketball, we're thinking, how do I get in a position to score? But this idea of, wait a minute, what if the team role is how do I put myself in the position to assist other people as opposed to being the one to score? So um, I, I think that, you know, just this idea of togetherness is a good, a good thing. Hey, we want to encourage people to put their, any questions you have, Sean and I are going to take questions as we go. Um, The way we set up today, there's so much content to talk about in this area of togetherness. Uh, Sean and I brainstorm a list of possible topics. Um, One of the things that came to light when we did that, a lot of times there's tensions that have to be managed. You can focus on one thing, but if you don't manage the balancing of other things with that, you may not be as effective. So we've simply positioned a series of several topics today where we think it's a balancing act. We need to focus on this and this, and this, and this. So we're gonna walk through a series of a handful of those tension things. And Sean, let's jump into the first one. Uh, if we can bring up on the screen, Brooks, the uh, the first sort of balancing act is this idea of that in fostering teamwork or healthy teams, there's, there's a shared sense of values and at the same time, there's aligned behavior. And, and let's just press into that a bit, Sean. How do you, in your work, where would you put this idea of shared values? How important is that in this mix of, uh, of creating strong teams and especially fostering teamwork and, and togetherness?
0: Well, you know, one, I think most ministries out there have a set of core values. You know, they're somewhere on a page. You know, they hang on a wall. They're not really happening down the hall. You know, everybody doesn't know what they are or they didn't really collectively buy into them, you know, and so it's one, you know, I wrote a whole book about that too. be mean about the vision like you've you've, everyone's got. I mean, that's rule number one. You got to share the vision. If you don't have shared values and shared vision, then it doesn't matter how high capacity each person is. You're going to be pulling in opposite direction. You know, but then we talk about it, Courage to Lead. The reason unhealthy cultures exist is there's a gap between what we say we value and what we really behave, how we really behave. I'll give you an example. We, we value lost people, lost people matter to God, helping people find their way back to God, all that language. Then in elders' meetings, the whole discussion is around not upsetting the four big giving families that are patriarchs in the church. <laughs> there's a gap between what we say we value and how we really behave, and a healthy culture, you know, closes that gap so that we have shared values, and we're holding each other accountable to behaviors
1: that demonstrate those values. Hmm. That's how I think about it. What about you? And and Sean, if I can just clarify in that too, the I think what you're saying is we could get our team together. And rah, 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 come up with a list of shared values. Like, we, and, and we can post them on the wall. We can put them up all over the place. We, we can have what we call a shared set of values. But where the tension comes in is, is if we're not having an aligned set of behaviors, if our actual practices don't line up with what we say on the wall is important, then there's an incongruity there. There's, I mean, you might say there's a lack of integrity even.
0: There is. Yeah, there's literally a lack of integrity, between and we lose credibility, if you think about it. You know, it's like lipstick on a pig. You know, it's yeah. like developing a new brand or marketing slogan that really you don't live out, you know, day in. I actually think values should be stated as behaviors. If we mm-hmm. can't hold ourselves accountable to them, let's not even put it on the list, mm-hmm. you know, because we really can't align and hold each other accountable to them.
1: Yeah. I, as you know, Sean, I was uh, an engineer for a whole bunch of years before coming into ministry. And I I was at a group called Naval Reactors for about 15 years. It's the group that oversees all of our nuclear ships and, you know, the whole life cycle management of nuclear ships. So you can imagine there's quite a bit of discipline in the safety part of that. Um, When the nuclear Navy became 50 years old, um, the vice president asked the head of the nuclear Navy, uh, we were in this gathering and asked the question, what's the secret to excellence in your organization? And I leaned over to the guy next to me at the table. I had been there for 15 years. I was a senior leader in the organization at this point, And I said, it's really weird. Like, I don't even, we don't use the word excellence. Like I had to think like we don't use that word inside our organization. And it, it came, that word, that came out of my mouth. And then the Admiral replied to the Vice President and said, here's what he said. Excellence is a value so deeply ingrained in our organization that we never have to use the word. And that, that's how I internalize the idea of values is, you know what? Values are something that, yeah, you do them, but even better, they shape they're like a mag- the magnetic field holding things in place. Values shape everything you do. And so this idea, take excellence as a, we can say the value of excellence. We can put it on a wall and tout that we're, but, but where the rubber meets the road is what's our actual behavior and practices. You know, is excellence really shaping everything about how we do in a way that what gets produced is excellence a, as the action of the outcome? So any other thoughts on
0: that, Sean? I tell pastors, like, let's just take the excellence core value. (laughs) Most churches adopted those because Bill Hybels did, you know, back in whenever, you know, he was the first pastor I know of to have excellence as one of their core values. And a lot of churches jumped on that bandwagon. But the truth is there's a difference between aspirational values and actual values. And most churches we work with have a set of aspirational values. They're things they'd like to value. In reality, they don't really value them. Hmm. And I would be so bold to suggest is those aren't core values then. what? There might be one or two aspirational values among your core values that you want to really, really embrace and have at your core. But in large measure, I think most core values, they bubble up. You know, why do people love working here? Why do people love being part of this team? What gets you fired around here? What frustrates us? You know, about team members. Why do people get rewarded and, and encouraged here? That, my friend, is the best way to really identify yeah. core values. I can drive up in a parking lot and tell by the landscaping and the welcome mat whether the church really values excellence or not. And most of the time, it just sounded good, yeah. it was an aspirational idea. But it wasn't something really we valued at the marrow of our bones. And I think that's where alignment begins to happen when it's really something that bubbles up in
1: us. You, you know, Sean, I, I've not thought about it till now, but th- this idea of the gap between the aspirational and the actual, what, what if for a second to keep things focused on action, we said there's this tension between your value and your aligned behavior. What if we actually abolished the word values from our vocabulary for a second? And we said, it's really about aspirational behaviors versus actual behaviors. What if what we were doing was working with our teams to say, what do we aspire to for our, for our behaviors? And then now we've got to keep in check, well, what's our actual behaviors? Um, how? Last thing before we move on to the next uh set attentions, have you, is there anything you've seen in the coaching and consulting work you're doing? Even simple things. How does a church keep that in check? This gap that we're talking about, how, how do you, how do you stop the gap from happening or at least keep it in check? Well,
0: one, I think if you're, you know, I've always been the senior leader and you have for a lot of years, you know, you have to be a person who lives out the values. They got to be in you you know they've got to come out of you. I tell pastors if you tell people you value follow through, execution and doing what you say you will do and Thursday is bulletin day and you're supposed to turn your outline in and nobody can find you at Thursday at noon then you're the problem. You know, it literally stops with the the leader. So we've got to share the values and then we're going to talk a little bit further down the road then. Then that gives you moral authority. To demonstrate some accountability. And I don't want to steal that thunder for that bullet yet. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, let's jump to the next one, actually. Um, the next tension that Sean and I, and again, when I say tension, these are good tensions. These are things we need, healthy, yeah. you know, elements we need to manage. So the idea that in fostering healthy teams and fostering togetherness, we need to simultaneously have this idea of personal ownership and team collaboration, personal ownership and team collaboration. So, um, Sean, for you, what, even the idea of personal ownership, just define it for you, you know, that not like there's a, you know, commonly understood definition, but how do you define personal ownership?
0: I heard Larry Osborne first talk about this, you know, back in the late 90s. You know, he was one of my coaches there for years. And he talks about this in Unity Factor and later on in Sticky Teams. He says early on, you know, you're like a golf team. Like everybody's in the cart together. Everybody knows what's going on. Everybody's kind of working on everything and watching everybody do what they do. But the more you grow up as an organization, you got to specialize. You have to take responsibility. Okay, you're going to bring the ball down. You don't need to bring the ball down. You need to stand in the paint and dunk. In fact, if I catch you bringing the ball down court again, you're seven foot two. You're not good at it. You know, so there's this need for honesty and segmentation and specialization. Like, yes, I'm willing to do anything, but I don't have to be in every meeting and everything's not my job description. I need a job description. I've got to have a lane that I own that I'm responsible for. You know, yeah, we're a team and we do anything, whatever it takes. But I need something where the buck stops here that I'm responsible for. And that makes me feel good as a leader if I'm the right kind of leader on the team. Like, I want something that I know I can own, I can run, and I can take responsibility for. And I'm empowered, you know, to lead in 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 the church. That's how I think about it. How do you think about personal ownership?
1: I, I think, um, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is if 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 we... If you drew a, a square on the piece of paper in front of you, just draw a box. And within your organization, inside that box, each of the people in your organization have a responsibility for something. There's something they're responsible for. And if you now, let's say there's 10 people in your organization, and you put all 10 smaller boxes inside the bigger box. What you would end up with is, clarity of responsibility to the individuals, but you still end up with a ton of white space inside that bigger box, meaning more than likely, especially in ministry, especially in church work, you you just don't have the staff and the supervisory structure and everything. We work with volunteers. And so you end up with what we would call a lot of white space inside that box. For me, the idea of personal ownership it, it, it's that idea of stewarding what I'm responsible for. I've simultaneously, I have to really carry the ball on what's inside my smaller square. But I've also got to recognize that I'm a steward of the big square. And there's a whole lot of white space there where you might not be able to point the finger at any one person on staff that's got the responsibility for it. And so, ownership means if I'm acting like an owner, if I own the restaurant, and I've got 10 employees, and all of a sudden, I'm seeing trash on the thing out in front, and I don't have an employee whose name's on that, as an owner, I'm saying, hey, it may not be my responsibility, but I'm filling in the white space to take care of that one. And so, that idea, ownership to me is my little box, I'm absolutely being diligent at my little box, but I'm recognizing I'm a steward of the bigger box that has a whole lot of white space in it. And so I'm, I'm expanding in, which gives the bridge to team. That's the tension to collaboration. The collaboration is how do we work together on all the white space parts of this that are in between our individual responsibilities?
0: Yeah, and I would just say in a healthy team, nobody ever says, well, that's not my area. That's not mm. my area. Well, there's no such thing. It's all our area, right? Like that—that's the team collaboration part of. It. There's no well, the the you know picking up the trash out front's not my area. No, it's all of our area. Mm. That we all take collective ownership, and I've got a personal ownership, you know, for my area that I know I'm ultimately responsible for, and the buck stops here. I will say this is re- really important in ministry space, like. The first person I ever heard talk about this was Mike Lake. And he said, and if you're paid staff, this is why, more importantly than ever, you've got to be a developer, not just a doer. Mm. You've got to build teams, volunteer teams, and raise up leaders to do a lot of the work of the ministry so that you can be an equipper and be able to look across the whole of ministry mm. you know, and see it and make it better and not be down in the weeds, you know, all the time. Really important for paid staff on a, on a church team.
1: You know, Sean, um, Admiral Rickover, who was the founder of the nuclear Navy back in the 40s, 1940s, um, he used to have to go meet with Congress to get things approved and everything. And Congress at one point, I think, I, I, if I understand it right, said, we're not going to fund you if you don't give us an org chart of your organization, an org chart showing the responsibility breakdown. And outside the admiral's office, he kept that chart hanging. And it was a very flat organization chart in Chinese. He gave it to the to Congress in Chinese. And his whole point was, I don't like to give people org charts and and even responsibility documents because it will constrain them to something smaller than their potential. Mm-hmm. I want them to see themselves as a steward of the bigger of the bigger thing. Well,
0: and I think that's the definition of kind of both. You know, there's some personal ownership but but ultimately we're all we're all stewards of the whole thing. You know, and if if one campus loses, we all lose. Mm-hmm. You know, if the worship team loses, the preaching loses, you know, and vice versa. If the children's ministry loses, hmm. we all lose. So I, I need to care about everything, not just my area, if I want us to win. Hmm.
1: In in our first area with the aspirational versus actual behaviors, is there is there an equivalent or any equivalent here with, you know, if we go to the extremes of unhealthy for a minute, can... Can the ownership piece show itself in unhealthy ways that inhibit the collaboration? Yeah. Or you
0: know, Lencioni talked about politics and silos, you know, and turf wars. It shows up in churches, especially the larger churches, you know, that we've worked with. Left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing and don't care. Hmm. And, you know, it's kind of every man for himself and people stealing people from other teams. And, <laughs> You know, there's all this stuff happening where, hey, I know I'm being held accountable, so I'm going to live and let live, and I'm going to get mine, and I'm going to make my thing successful, and I really don't care what happens to the rest of it. But at the end of the day, it creates a toxic team and an unfair place, and, you know, together everybody accomplishes more, so the church loses, you know, we're literally cutting our nose off to spot our face when that begins to happen.
1: So this would, this would be the area where healthy communications have to fit in really well, too. This topic of personal ownership and team collaboration, you've got to have the healthy. I, I love what you just said, that in an unhealthy organization, not only do the silos not know what's going on in the others, they don't care to.
0: Yeah, it's always a flag to me when I am in a, when I drop into a church staff meeting, you know, and I'll do that. I'll ask, I just want to be a part of the little staff meeting, you know, and then we'll debrief afterwards and they'll go around and begin to share and somebody will speak up. It's on the executive team of a large church and I'll say, I really don't have anything today. Like, whoa, whoa. <laughs> you just basically communicated. You don't really care. Anybody in this room knows what's going on in your ministry area and you don't have any desire to share it with them. You know, that's a flag. Now, we wouldn't ever say it that way,
1: mm. but that's
0: how subtle these things happen. So I tell teams like you need to proactively be the champion for your ministry mm. and over communicate with everybody. Hey, just so you know, guys, here's what we're doing over here. Like, I, I want to make everybody a fan of my area. They may not naturally care. I want to make them care. I want to speak so passionately about what God's doing in my life and in and through my ministry that everybody's like, man, I wish I was in his ministry or her ministry. And if everybody kind of takes that collective posture, it's pretty, you know, synergetic in its power on a team. Mm -hmm.
1: So, Sean, let's just quickly share in this era of COVID and decentralized teams and fostering teamwork at Exponential, the weekly rhythm We have our entire team does a a Zoom call together really to share what's going on across the boundaries. You know, what do I need help with? What am I doing this week? It is a kind of that cross silo sort of gathering call. And then we do every week uh, completely, I'll say separate from work, uh, we also do a weekly prayer Zoom call where there's a prayer time together. That's our rhythm is a, I'd call it a production meeting, which is sharing cross silo and then the, uh, the prayer meeting each week. And then we do other meetings that are the one-offs where we need to do special things. What's the rhythm for you and your, you said you had 17 coaches across the country and you've got a leadership team and you're mobilizing different things. What's your rhythm for how you're communicating in a decentralized time period to build this fostering togetherness.
0: Well, obviously the rhythms are going to ebb and flow over time. And there are manic seasons when you need to connect more frequently and other times when you don't need to commit so frequently. So understanding those and everybody buying into those, but I'm a big fan of a committed, frequent, consistent first priority team meeting. Nothing gets in the way of it other than Jesus coming back. You know, I don't bolt on it. I'm not too busy for it. If an exception occurs and I have to bolt on the team meeting, you know, then I want to get it rescheduled in the next 24 hours or so. Because I don't want to communicate to my team. A bad leader, I think, Todd, says, hey, do we really have anything we need to meet about this week? You know, because that kind of communicates a transactional relationship. Like, (laughs) I'll just call you if I need something out of you or i just need to get something done or you're in trouble. You know, which kind of flows into the third thing we wanted to talk about today, like the balance between head and heart. And i think the rhythm of your meetings needs to include, you know, a head and a heart. And so i'm a big fan of having a collective group meeting, but then i you know, i want to spend some time with my direct reports. Not because they're in trouble, not because i need something from them, not just to exchange information. Because I care about them. Because I care about Brooks. Brooks, I know you don't think I care about you, but I care about you. You know, Terry, I know you think I don't care about you, but I never want to communicate that I'm just using you to get the work done. You know, I want to do life with you. I want to know what's going on. I want to know what makes you tick. I want to know how I can encourage you. I want to be able to coach you, challenge you. Disciple you, sharpen you. And that, I don't need to do that in a group setting first. I need to do that privately. That's what the gospel says. So I think, however frequently, I'm, I'm hopefully answering your question. I think, however frequently you do it, you, you've got to communicate to your team that they are first priority. You know, and then you've got to flow in a rhythm, make sure you're head and heart. I tell leaders all the time people don't want to be managed. I mean, raise your hand if you like to be managed. <laughs> Nobody likes, but people do want to be led. They want to be encouraged. They want to be inspired. And I tell senior pastors all the time, number one complaint of campus pastors. Here it is. Internationally, he doesn't know what's going on over here, and he doesn't really care about us. So I've always told my teams, listen, I may be too much in your grill. I may call you too much. We may meet too frequently, but you're not going to be able to accuse me of not knowing what's going on and not wanting to spend time with you. You know, if I'm going to be accused of one of those two things, I'd rather be accused of the former rather than the, the latter. So figuring that out and getting it on the calendar and committing to it, it's one of the most important systems in the church as far as I'm concerned.
1: Is there, in this idea of head and heart, Sean, you're, you're describing a, an intentionality of time commitment to both. What else for you, what, what, what else would you put under this head and heart? Um,
0: Well, you know, of course, we see, you know this, I've seen you grow in this area, frankly. You were a mean person when I first met you, you know, and you still can be a little mean. I can be, too. We all both know that. But, like, we've learned how to, man, through our growth in Christ and, you know, gentleness is the fruit of the Spirit. Like, we've learned to kind of balance, you know, the ability to, you and I think fast. We move fast, you know, and we've bruised people along the way. And learning to slow down, you have to slow down to go fast in a healthy way. And, man, not blowing into meetings and blowing past people. And, you know, I've, used, I've done it. You know, I've been a transactional leader. I've used people to get the ministry done. You know, I, I see that mistake made in past. And then, of course, I see them building their external platform. And up underneath, the people closest to them, they're losing respect with them every day. And, of course, I say measuring success. Success is ultimately being loved and respected by those closest to us. Uh To me, that's the heart thing. Like, I I don't want to be respected more on Instagram than I am by my own team. And my team will tell you, I work at this. I repent to them often, you know. I apologize to them often, but also encourage them like I've I've worked. I've had to work hard at this because I'm not naturally a pastoral person. I think that's fair for you as well. Is that fair? You know, it's something we have to work at. And for a lot of leaders out there, we have to balance our head part with the heart part, the shepherd to knowing the condition of our flocks. Mm -hmm. And you can systemize that. You can work on that. You can ask your team to hold you accountable to that. <laughs> Even tell you when you violated that, which my team feels permission to do.
1: That's really good, Sean. Um, let's uh, let's move on to the fourth item or the fourth set of tensions. Yeah. So we talk about trust
0: and accountability. You know, I'll just I'll just I'll throw this back to you because. One of the things I respect about you in a virtual—you've led your team virtually through exponential. I mean, you guys still don't have like big corporate offices. You know, you might have a thousand square feet of office space or something somewhere. I—I've never been to it.
1: I think uh, so. our team would would uh, be thrilled to death to have a thousand square feet. I. I think.
0: <laughs> I, I, I think so how have you? But but you've you've had team members that have been with you for twenty years now, plus. Yeah. So how have you, in a virtual environment, you know, naval engineer, you know, built such trust with your team? I'm curious.
1: Our team did just text me to let me know that we have 400 square feet, Sean. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. That's great. Um, Well, somehow
0: in spite of that, like you've done this, you know what I'm saying? You've done this.
1: Yeah. And um, I think... You know it. The very first thing that my mind goes to, and I mean you've you've taught on this a ton, is, and it even comes back to the heart part of what you're talking about. It's just so vitally important. in the hard, the harder the work you do, church work in our case, nonprofit work, um, people's hearts got to be in it. I mean, people have to the calling part of of man, I'm in this, you know, recognizing I could make more money somewhere else. I could have a bigger, nicer office somewhere else. I could do things. So, you know, I, I would say when I look at the longevity of staff that stay with us for the longevity, um, there's a fairly common denominator that, uh, that people really buy into the mission. I mean, what you said earlier, the vision, the mission, the values part, they're bought into it. And so- Here's what happens for me. You know, this idea of balancing trust and accountability. Um, I naturally have a very high level of trust with people who share the values and the mission, and I know we're going to be in it, kind of thing. And and you know, it would be interesting to have our team on sharing because. You know, I can be pretty rough at times, and I can be pretty demanding at times. If you jump to the, you know, this is trust and accountability, and the this idea of trust. Um, when you trust the people you're working with, you can have hard conversations. You can be tough. You can, you know, Bill Gates said one time. I think it was in Time Magazine. Uh, The secret to our success at Microsoft is we don't sit around spending all all kinds of time talking about the six out of seven categories we're best in the world at. We sit around talking about how we're going to become best at the seventh thing. And uh, that kind of culture of high trust opens up the gate to conversations that you usually wouldn't be able to have, plays right in then to the accountability that, you know, I'm sure, Sean, you've had people working for you before that just can't handle the teachability of negative information or can't, you know, as soon as you feel like you're trying to implement the accountability thing or practically do the, implement, you know, it's just like there's a, a mutiny thing going on kind of thing. So, there really is a synergy between the accountability and the trust, I guess, is what I'm trying to say there. And it starts with the people that you're bring it on to the team, whether there's a natural connection for the trust.
0: Well, I think you've done it well. I mean, I think one of the things you've done well that pastors could watch you and learn from is that you are the same on the stage and in the public arena and in the big crowds as you are, you know, on a zoom call with your team, you know, or sitting in a living room with them. And I think that kind of consistency you know, embeds trust on a team. But when you're different publicly than you are privately, you know, you're different in a, in a large crowd than you are in a small room in the green room, which I'm not a huge fan of anyway, <laughs> you know, that, that then there's, there's this... I, I tell guys, it's like a, a, a team member doesn't understand trust when they say, why don't they just trust me to do my job? Why don't they just trust me? Well, trust is something you earn. It's something you build. I use the analogy uh, of my, my 17-year-old daughter walking in and saying, dad, um, I'm going out with this guy. You really don't know him. And this is where we're, I don't really know where we're going. And I'm not sure what time we'll be home, but just trust me, you know, that doesn't, that conversation doesn't go well. But if, but if she says, dad, I'm going out with Nick, you've met him, you know, he's the guy you met at church, which that's, that takes it up a notch. You know, we're going to Sonic, you know, to get a slushy and we will be back at 11 PM. And if she shows up at 11 PM, And she does that the next three dates. Do I trust her more or less after that? I trust her more. So trust is something we build through high levels of consistency, you know, behavior and high levels of communication. So if you want to build trust on your team, whether you're the senior leader or another member on the team, I'm going to be very proactive in my communication. You're not going to have to ask me. I'm going to tell you what's going on. And two, I'm going to build a track record with you over time. Uh, I'll earn your trust. And I tell senior pastors who step into existing churches, like don't go in there and say, okay, I'm a senior pastor. Now I got the gavel. You guys better listen. You know, you don't, you don't have the influence in that church. You're not the primary influencer in that church. You better earn their trust.
1: Yeah, you And better, it, yeah. I, I think Sean, like when I, I think about different either people working with exponential now or who've been in the past. And I, sometimes I have to check myself and stop and I'll even vocalize it sometimes. I might, especially with our senior team, I, I, I sometimes have to say, Hey, look, it might seem like I don't trust you with what's going on, but here's the reality. If I don't trust somebody on our team, they're not going to be on the team. Right. If you're on our team, I trust you. <laughs> you know, it's like um, that is a threshold thing for me. And, Really, it's because I trust you, we can have the harder conversations because I want you and us to be better. And that's where, for me, the accountability part fits in. Um, let's let's push into the accountability part a little bit, Sean. Yes, like, yes, uh, this absolutely. is near and dear for us at Exponential right now. We're really, one of the things I've realized moving through COVID is prior to COVID, Our metrics were very clear, you know, number of people at a signing up for an event and you know, number of people downloading something and doing things. In the middle of COVID, it's really put a little bit of a glitch in our metric system kind of thing, just like it has churches. And we're really trying to tighten down at this point. You know, we've got a team of people, and you know, we we use what's called objectives and key results. We have yearly objectives and those transition into key results and Key results transition into our, you know, weekly priorities and activities. Um, when When you think accountability, Sean, whether it's in your ministry or with the churches you're working with, let's define accountability here even on what we're talking about.
0: Yeah, to me, the first principle is letting your yes be yes and your no be no. You know, to me, it's that integrity thing. If I tell you I'm going to do something and I tell you I'm going to call you back or I'm going to email you. Or I'm going to get this to you. I I need I need to be held accountable, to be good as my word. That's just integrity. I, I just need to be I need to be open to that conversation and be called on it. You know, and I'm talking about as the senior pastor with with my assistant or the children's director or the intern, frankly. And but then that gives moral authority for me to flip that around and say, if you tell me you're going to do something, we call it creating a, building an action oriented team. You know, we teach people how to build action-oriented minutes in their meetings. I don't really care who said, she said, and Robert's Rules of Order. I want to know what Brooks committed to, when it's due, when he's going to report back, and then we're going to start the next meeting with that. And I'm on that list, by the way. So if I tell you I'm going to do something, I want to be held accountable to it. The other biblical principle I think, too, is that, you know, fools don't take correction in the book of Proverbs. A fool despises counsel, despises correction, but mm. the wise listen to instruction mm. and 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 take counsel. So there's that coachability and teachability. Our friend Matt Keller wrote a book called The Key to Everything. You know what he said? The key to everything is coachability. Mm. Teachability. I, I mean, don't be defensive with me. Don't be insecure. You know, don't get your hackles up when somebody challenges you on something. Be, 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 be a humble leader, be a secure leader, be a coachable leader.
1: Let me push into that, Sean, and ask this. If you, if, if you just took your leadership experience in what you've done in your life with the church and now the ministry and things, and, and so the data set are the people who've worked with you on, on the things now. Um, what's your conclusion on this idea of teachability? Is teachability teachable? Or like when you have somebody come on to your staff and that the minute you think in your mind, this person's not teachable, how often, it, it, I guess my question is, do you need to let the person go at that point or how teachable is teachability?
0: Yeah. To me, it's the difference between IQ and EQ. You know, your IQ cannot improve. You're born with it. Yeah. You know, you were born with a higher IQ than I was, Todd, bar none, you know. But your the great thing about your EQ is that it can grow. You know, it's the softer skills. And interestingly enough, people are hired for EQ and usually fired for EQ. <laughs> Lack of self-awareness. I've got data on this. I, you and I haven't talked about this. Uh, the, the 49% of newly hired employees, this is according to leadershipiq.com, fail within 18 months. Hmm. But surprisingly so, three-fourths of those are not for competence issues. 26% of new hires fail because they can't accept feedback. 23% because they're unable to understand and manage emotions. 15% because they have the wrong temperament. Only 11% because they lack the necessary skill. Hmm. So what do we all need to work on? Self-awareness, humility, (laughs) being approachable. And honestly like you and I we've had to learn that. We've gotten better at that. Have we not Todd? Over time?
1: But but, but age and maturity and that means great. anybody can do it. For for I'm going to speak for myself and not for you. I don't I I just don't have the patience for people who aren't teachable. And so how and and a lot of leaders that are leading things how how do you take steps to help people be teachable? When you're leading an organization, what's that look like to invest the time in helping? It's
0: somebody? a great question. I've told a lot of pastors this, you know, behind closed doors. I don't know if I've ever talked about it publicly, but I'm going to close that staff meeting and I'm going to follow Todd back to his office. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to close the door and I say, Todd, can I share my last 10% with you? You know, we talk about sharing our last 10%, not holding back. You know, you didn't realize it. But I challenged you, held you accountable, doing what you say you're going to do. And when I did today, you got totally defensive about it. So the first is that kind of even what we were talking about. that kind of like I need to hold you accountable. I need to point that out to you. To me, that's discipleship. Like we think discipleship's taking everybody through a book and a curriculum, and you know, no, it, it's it's helping people hone in on their behavior in the areas of their life where they're not like Christ, you know, and. When somebody's defensive and reactionary, I need to call them on it. You know, so I think there's that kind of honesty with each other and giving that kind of permission for my team to do that with me. And then then you begin to realize, okay, how do they receive that? Are they willing to listen to that? You know, if Todd says to me, hey, man, you're right. I don't recognize that. You know, I know that's a habit for me. Hey, I'm giving you permission to point that out every time you see it. Great. Then I think Todd can make it. You know, if every time I try to approach them, they're defensive. And I've noticed everybody in the office is walking on eggshells around them. They can't be on the team, man. Henry Cloud talks about in necessary endings, the wise, the foolish, and the evil. Mm-hmm. He says the dangerous person is the fool because they don't understand anything but consequences. They will not listen to instruction. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and a fool ultimately, a fool is not going to listen to you. Mm-hmm. They're not going to listen to you. So those are the ones that you have to, as Lencioni says, manage them off the team. Ultimately, you know, you can't, we can't walk on eggshells around you on our team. Hmm.
1: We, we had one question in the chat, uh, Sean, one in clarification is teachability, coachability, the same as humility. And I, I would say humility is a, piece of teachability and coachability. It they aren't one and the same, but it's a piece of, would you agree or disagree, or what would you add to it? I I agree with that.
0: You know, insecurity, you know, would be a you know antithesis, an antonym of, you know, um humility, you know, as well. So you don't want to you don't want to be insecure, mm-hmm. you know, but you want to have humility. You want to be secure in your own skin enough to accept instruction, and even correction. And I want to do that too. You know, you want to shut down honesty on your team if you're the senior leader. Just be defensive when somebody tries to challenge you on something. You know, you so you have to champion that and be approachable, not be so defensive, not defend your intention. But it doesn't really matter what you meant. What yeah. meant was, is what was received by your team. So just own it. And two of the most credibility-building words a, a leader can say is, I'm sorry, I blew it. You're right. You know, and I tell leaders all the time, you're probably disagreeing with them in your mind when they come to you already. So just don't let the flesh win. Just say, thank you for coming to me. Let me process that (laughs) because I'm probably arguing with you in my mind while you're telling me what I did wrong. I'm telling you why I can justify what I did. So I don't want the flesh to win in that moment. So thank you for coming to me. Let me process it. That's what I do with my wife. And then the Holy Spirit starts to take over. And I realize about six minutes later, she's 100% right hmm. and true with my team as well.
1: So if we were, just before we move on to the final fifth item, Sean, if, if teachability slash coachability was a recipe for a minute, let's just bottom line, what are the list of ingredients that go into teach, the teachability recipe? There's humility... There's I'm assuming there's a what I'm hearing you say, there's a desire to learn, which might be separate from a desire to change and get better. But there's a a learning piece. There's a desire to change piece. um, There's a willingness to see things differently than I'm already seeing it. Whatever the antonym to defensiveness is, there's some element of uh, an ingredient that I'm not being defensive
0: Yeah, it's approachability, you know, I call it just being approachable. I I never want people to feel like, you know, they have to crawl up to me to, you know, say something to me or for fear of how I'm going to react because of my past actions. And I think the only thing I didn't I I think that list is amazing. I think the only thing I would add to it is like a, a kind of a public proactive permission. Hey, I just want you to know. It's not if I'm going to frustrate you, when I'm going to frustrate you, when you're going to see some imperfection in me. It's how often and how you're going to help me with it. You know, so I'm giving you permission in advance Hmm. to help me get better. Hmm. You know, um, I've heard um, Nick Saban say, again, average players don't want to be coached. Elite players run back over to the sidelines and say, what did I do wrong? Hmm. What did I do wrong? You know, so I, I want to I go into a meeting as the senior pastor after a message, after my sermon, and I want to say, what did I do wrong? Well, mm. tell me how great I was. I want to know what I did wrong. I want to know how I can get better. And I would get angry in debrief meetings, Todd. They would say, I thought it was good. I thought it was good service. No, I thought it was fine. What? <laughs> it was good. It was fine. What, how do we make it better next week then? I want to know specifically what would move it from good and fine To knock it out of the park. So there's this mining for honesty, you know, in healthy team cultures. And the leader kind of sets that tone, I think. So maybe maybe we maybe we crafted a good list there. I don't know.
1: Well, our our final pairing uh, was this idea that uh, fostering togetherness isn't just about the productive aspect of work. It's an integration of work and life. Um, and and the elements of, and we've touched on it in some of the other areas, the shepherding piece fits in there, but um, let's talk a little bit about this. How do we, let me say it the other way. It's it's very easy in a decentralized digital space uh, to just be overly focused on work. You know, I think about our team meetings at Exponential, when we get together face to face, when we travel to be together, it naturally brings a balance on that work and life thing. There's there's a lot of time where we're also talking about life things and it isn't just about the meeting because we're 24-7 together when we come together as a decentralized team. But it's very easy on Zoom calls and the busyness of our schedule and we're jumping onto the call that it's work, 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 work. So how, how do we bring in this balance, Sean, and what's it even mean to bring in a balance of of the life dimension of things?
0: I think you're living this, you know, I mean, kudos to you and the exponential team. It's one of the reasons why your team really respects you. You know, the typical church staff will tack on prayer to the last five minutes or first five minutes, (laughs) you know, instead of, hey, you know what, we're going to schedule a meeting to approach God together. You know, we I'm a task-oriented person, so I had to work at this. You know, we had a Tuesday morning meeting for every year I was a pastor. We called it Fist Bump Tuesday. It's a 45-minute meeting. And really the only ground rule is we could do no business. <laughs> we had food there. We sat in a circle. We laughed. We cut up. We didn't talk about work. And we did virtual fist bumps. We went around the room and just said, hey, if somebody exhibited our values, did something to serve you, your team well, you know, or you just want to celebrate something in another ministry area mm. on the team. don't you just give a virtual fist bump across the room mm. and you know, who got you know, who got the most virtual fist bumps Todd. I saw him cry more than once our facility director. Mm. Now you talk about talk about a thankless task, mm. you know, but, but I tell you, I had to work on that. I had to work on that. It was a special meeting, you know, and, and, cionni says that the definition of bad death by meeting is the meeting where you try to get everything done anyway. So why not schedule some special retreats, get out, you know um, Top golf is a spiritual meeting. You know what I'm saying? and um, yeah so so I know marketplace leaders so we, I, if I can say this on a church uh, you know thing today, they're doing like wine and cheese zoom calls at the end of the day in the marketplace. The brilliant thing about that, like, is that there's, there's no business allowed. Like, it's just life at the end of the day. And on the marketplace, I work with a nine billion a year company. I just told the CEO this last week. I've gotten more reviews, positive, glowing reviews from him. The fact that he showed up at one of those meetings and seemed jovial and kind and not a taskmaster, you know, in that meeting than anything, any genius idea I've ever heard him have. So I think it's that for those of us who are kind of naturally, you know, hard charging, driven guys and gals to even systemize some of that, to work against our tendencies so that we don't look like we eat nails for breakfast and use people to get the ministry done. And But over time, it, it does become more natural. It does mm-hmm. over time. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, Sean, uh, I want to let everybody know you, you just put out a uh, – uh, some curriculum on building healthy teams. Uh, what's the website people can get to for that? Yeah, we actually have a free version of it. Crashteamscourse.com. Crashteamscourse.com.
0: There's several modules on just how to build a, a healthy team culture. You know, they can opt in for a more more robust, you know, full coaching deal later. But um, the first part of it is free. There's four, five, five modules, I think, of training in there for for teams just to begin to have this conversation um and create a healthier team culture.
1: Yeah. And what do we got coming up the next couple of weeks for people here, Sean?
0: Hey, you and I um are gonna be interviewing Andy Stanley about decision making. Yep. And that's gonna be our next conversation, I think. Here on That's the, a two on weeks leadership.
1: coming up. Yeah, we'll. Uh, he's got a new book out on decision-making, so we're going to get to Yeah, end.
0: I've actually been reading it, you know, Better Decisions, Fewer Regrets, and um, I look forward to interviewing, you know, one of my old coaches, Andy Stanley, that I, I got to walk, you know, about a decade with. Um, he's willing to meet with me and has impacted my leadership in amazing ways to this day, and um, I know you and he are dear friends as well, so just look forward to catching up with him, and Um, I'll I'll close with this. I'll I'll plant the seed. You know, I was with David Green, the owner of Hobby Lobby a few weeks back. He said in 100% of my decisions, I have maximum 60% certainty. Mm. (laughs) And I thought there's another great leader that's just not afraid to make decisions. Mm. You know, but I see a lot of churches right now paralyzed Mm. because they took a step, didn't work out got slapped on the wrist. They've had some haters, they're navigating negativity and they're just sort of paralyzed right now. So hopefully in our next conversation, we free up leaders to make more courageous decisions in 2021.
1: Got it. I think uh, I don't have the schedule in front of me. I think that the Andy Stanley interview may be in two, it may be two weeks and next week may be uh, measure our personal scorecards of measuring success, how we personally, do our scorecards. It's one or the other. Well, They'll, people have, to stay tuned. They'll have to stay tuned, man. Yeah, just have to stay tuned. It's one of those two. Hey, and last thing, uh, a couple months from now at Exponential, we're running across the United States roundtable events to get, to get into facilitated conversations. Yeah. Um, many of you that are listening would be great candidates to host some of these Exponential roundtables. We're looking to do them all across the country. All you need to do is visit multiplication.org forward slash host. And it's a turnkey solution you host, and uh, we make it really easy for you to be involved in, in uh, facilitating these roundtable conversations. Uh, several different topics and just check it out online. Uh, Sean, thanks a lot. As always, this was a lot of fun and uh, look forward to talking to you some more.
0: Same here, man. I respect and love you. And I- I've enjoyed these conversations. Let's keep doing it.
1: All right, Sean. Thank you.